Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, JJ. My name's JJ. I'm a recovering compulsive overeater. Hi, JJ. I heard that there's a person who puts water up here for the speaker, so I will take advantage of it because previously I used to think that if I saw food, it was mine and it was all mine. And now sometimes I look and I ask, and if it's not mine, it's not mine. Um, I have a book that I put together in 2005 that is my recovery book and I carry it with me and that book will say more than I could say in my 25 minutes and it's organized and anything I say tonight is disorganized it's spontaneous and it's from the heart which does mean it's true Um, I'm a recovering compulsive overeater the miracle happened for me and the reason I come to speak is because on my own I will forget that the miracle happened. From day to day, I might get caught up in what's going on today, what problems I'm facing today, what challenges, and I might become ungrateful. I might become irritable and discontent, and then I'll turn to food because I'm a compulsive overeater, and that's the first place I go when I'm disconnected from my higher power. I didn't come into this program looking for a higher power. I came in because I knew that diets no longer worked. I came in because I was 375 pounds. I was having panic attacks. I was highly medicated. I um, could not do another diet. I could not do another pill. Uh, I could not do another therapist, except for the fact that a therapist had said, go to OA. I didn't know it, but I was suicidal because... I didn't want the life that I had anymore. It's just that I didn't want to die. But the panic attacks and the sleepless nights and the endless eating were killing me. So that's what it was like. It doesn't matter what I ate, how I ate. It was the mental state. It was the confusion in my head that drove me here. And I have heard young women describe stories that say that's what I felt like it's just that I went the other way around with the food and so that's how I identify with most people in the room is it's not the it's not what I ate it's not the quantity or the lack of it's the insanity Um, and so when I tell you that I'm here tonight to be your speaker and I'm grateful I actually have to tell you, lower your expectations, because I don't think I'm going to tell anybody here anything that's going to be of use. I think the only person that's going to get get helped tonight is me. When I go to speak, there is something that happens through me throughout the course of the day. I don't get it every day, but I get the gift of the daily reprieve. For instance, I came home from work tonight and I opened my refrigerator and I opened the freezer to get some ice for a Diet Coke and then I saw something in the freezer I said oh I'm speaking tonight I'm not going to add something to my food and that's what happened that's the difference 
That's what's different today versus where I was when I came into program. Because this morning when I got up, I made a phone call. I, 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 talked, out, I talked to somebody. I called this person my sponsor. He knows me better than anybody else in the world because I speak honestly with him. I do the most difficult thing with him. I tell him one day at a time what I'm going to eat. And he tells me that those are my choices. He says those are the most personal things that a person can do. In my experience of sponsoring people, I have had men tell me they'd rather talk about every nasty thing they've ever done and how sad they are about it than have to tell me what they eat. I had one, one, spons- one sponsor leave me because he said he felt too much shame telling me on a daily basis. And I said, I hope you find what you need because that's what I do. The reality is I used to go through life eating mindlessly and unaware of the consequences. And now what I do is I eat consciously and sometimes I have this uncomfortable consciousness about what I eat, but I'd rather have that than what I had before. I also thought about something I wanted to say that when I first came into program, there was a reading, there was something that there was about how some of us choose to eat, choose to abstain from specific foods, and some of us eat all foods more moderately. And I could not deal with an abstinence based on specific foods. I had done that, and I had found that I wasn't willing to do that this time. But the concept that I would eat all foods more moderately was an open window that I could squeeze through. Just like... I didn't come into the program looking for God, but the idea that I could find God as I understand God, that I could actually grow to recognize that there is a God personal to me, and it's only as I understand it and nobody else, that, was a, that I could accept. And so it's basically what I love about this program is that a lot of the decisions I make are between me, my sponsor, and my higher power. When I find myself wanting to defend my food to my sponsor, I know, yeah, I'm on the slippery slope. Fortunately, I'm on the slippery slope less often than I'm on solid ground. And so that's another thing I'm grateful for. Okay. So, what else do I have to tell you? (laughs) Um, It's been 15 years since I came into these rooms. And when I came in, I was, I was desperate and hopeless. And um, I grabbed at the, the lifeline of OA. I, I did not like reading the big book. Uh, my reason for not liking the big book is I was raised in a household where there was nothing worse than a recovering alcoholic. I was raised by alcoholics who never admitted their alcoholism. And when I hear alcoholics talk about all the fun they had and all the excitement of being an active alcoholic, I go, and I grew up in that. And it still stirs resentment in me towards my adoptive parents. And I had a hard time wrapping my head around the big book. But I read in the big book about how people in recovery are like shipwrecked survivors and they're in the cold water, and they think they're about to die. And when I had panic attacks, my feet would go cold, and I had trouble breathing. I thought I was having a heart attack. And I would see doctors who told me there was nothing wrong with me. 
and they would give me pills that sometimes had effect on me that I didn't care for. And I went to meetings and I cried and people cried with me and told me how they understood what I was feeling. And they didn't just say, I understand you. I heard them talk about the chaos and the insanity in the same way that I couldn't express myself, but coming to these meetings, I started to develop an understanding of this is what I couldn't talk about with anyone else. Because nobody else but a compulsive overeater understands. And even today when I joke, because my sponsor says things to me that I pick up, when somebody offers me something and I joke that there's not enough of it, nobody else nobody else but another compulsive overeater understands. When I say that I can't do it because it's too expensive, because I don't want to pay the price, nobody else but another compulsive overeater understands what I'm saying. I told you this would be disorganized. (laughs) Um, What happened for me was that I started going to meetings. I heard people telling their stories. I wanted what they had. And I started memorizing some of the literature. And I didn't intentionally do it, but I realized that hearing on acceptance, on awakening, over and over again, certain phrases started sticking in my head, and it made sense to me. It made sense to me the way that prayers I had been, that had been pushed on me as a child, couldn't get into my head, but the way that, the way that the third step prayer and the way that on awakening got into my head, and the way that I started thinking about now that I want to bring it up into my memory, it won't come up. started thinking about how we stopped praying for our own selfish ends. And we started, we recognized that that if somebody else will be helped and we can be helped as well, then that's a valid prayer. I stopped thinking about what I wanted and thinking about what I was supposed to do. Um... I wrote about, I started writing. I hated the first time that somebody in a meeting told me, asked me if I had I written about it and shared it with my sponsor. I did not like that. I found that writing was a very difficult tool for me, but I found that there was literature that resonated for me and I wanted to get it, so I started copying down literature. I took the book for today and I copied one page a day. And, it took, and I made an agreement with myself that if I missed a day, I wouldn't punish myself by having to do two days. I would still just do one page a day, but that the next time that page came around, I would do that page. And I was copying it into a little handheld device because that way I could have it with me anywhere I would go. And it took me four years to actually get all of the days from four today into my, my, my device. But I did it. And I felt very proud of it. Every time I read that book, that my hand put those words on that page and that it, was go, it would go in with me everywhere I went. And some days I would read the words on the page and I'm going, I've never heard this before, but my hand put it in here. This has never meant so much to me, but now with a different perspective, it means something to me. 
And then the next time I picked a book to do it, I actually did it in a year, and I thought, wow, my, you know, what? It, this is how. This is one way you can measure change by giving yourself a simple goal and accomplishing it. So you can see that my experience is not about the food. The experience is about calming myself down long enough to be conscious. When I would try to do diets, I would get so hung up on it, and then if I did it wrong, I would throw the whole thing out the window and binge for two days. And then I would wait three years before I was desperate enough to try again. I, I have developed this idea. I recognize I cannot do the food perfectly. I don't even want to try anymore. That's like me. That's like some people talk about doing battle with their their their, their red light foods. For me, that perfectionism has to go out the window because I can wrap myself in the perfectionism, and then when I can't be perfect, then I can just say, "Well, you know, I'll just throw the whole thing out." What saves me is the idea that I do this one day at a time. What saves me is recognizing that what I'm doing what I've been doing for a while is better than any of the perfect ideas I had about what it would look like when I was in my disease. Because my disease kept making that perfectionism too tall a mountain to climb, so why even try it? I also used to... I've heard people say things that I'm surprised I can remember so many different things that it made sense to me that when I came... I heard somebody say when I came in the program that that they were the infinite piece of shit that the world revolved around. And that's, that's how I felt. I made myself better than most people because that way I didn't have to deal with how bad I felt inside. Um, another thing is that I didn't think very much of myself except I saw, thought about myself all day long. I, I find that, that the best thing that ever happens to me is that I get so busy helping somebody I completely forget about myself for a moment. And once in a while, I get a chance to recognize that those moments may only last 20 minutes, 30 minutes, but through the course of the day, I might have six or seven of those, and I string those those together at the end of the day, and I go, wow, I probably had four or five hours where I wasn't thinking about myself, and I wasn't thinking about food, and I wasn't thinking about whether I was good or bad. I just was. So this is how the insanity has calmed down. This is how I have practiced acceptance of I'm powerless over food. But I have a choice. Every morning that I choose to pick up the phone and call my sponsor, we talk about for today and then before hanging up, I say, oh, by the way, here's breakfast, lunch, and dinner. By actually voicing it to another human being, I have made a plan, and then what I do is I find a way to get into action. Most of the time, by the time I've told him breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I have already taken action to put it together. I remember when I was in my disease, and I went to a place where people got food. I saw somebody sitting at a bench with the best-looking, healthy lunch in a brown bag. And I thought, whoa, how does he do that? And I went into the place that I went into and got what I usually got, but I remember seeing that and thinking, that was cool. Surprisingly, I, I don't have a brown bag. I have a nice little insulated bag. And there's a lot of days where I leave my house with it packed 
and I go, I'm doing this. I'm making my food the night before and taking it out of the refrigerator and putting it in my bag and taking it with me to work. And when it's time to eat, I don't have to do that rush, that hurry, that indecision, that, oh, I should do this, but I'm going to do that. I just eat what I did, what I planned. And then here's the other thing. Then there are the days when I don't do that. And I call my sponsor and I have no idea what I'm going to do for food. And I'm like, oh, this, I hate this. And then by the time I've talked with him, I say, oh, I have a plan. It doesn't have to be a perfect plan. But I have a plan by the time I've done talking with him. When I started program, I used to adhere to this very strict thing that if it goes in my mouth, it goes in somebody else's ear. I will say that I wish I was willing to do that right now. I, I sometimes change my food plan during the day there was a time when I used to pick up the phone before doing that. I trust myself to make choices today, but there are times when I, I liked that comfort. And, and I know that I can do that if I'm desperate enough. Here's the thing. I'm not as in much pain as I used to be. The pain that I feel today is usually about one or two separated things. And I have these interesting conversations with people around me who are close to my life about those conversations. I never used to do that. I never used to speak honestly about what am I thinking or feeling. I didn't even know what I was feeling. My second therapist used to keep asking me, and how did that make you feel? And the reality was, at that part of my life, I didn't know what a feeling was. I knew what I thought. But the difference between my thoughts and my feelings was alien to me. And now I, I kind of know, I know what the feelings are. Sometimes the feelings go back to childhood. And I know that when I was a child, there was nobody listening to my feelings. But food was always there. Which is why when I'm really hungry, angry, lonely, tired, irritable, confused, food calls me. I have to be honest. The reality of recovery one day at a time is I know food still calls me. I just don't pick up the phone. <laughs> or if I do pick up the phone, I'm calling somebody to say, hey, food's calling me. Can we talk? How are you? <sighs> um, I said this would be disorganized. Um, i got to talk about the steps. When I came in, I was desperate. In the big book, it talks about being thrown a lifeline. I did not like writing. I did not want to forgive anybody because I felt that I was a victim and everybody had hurt me and I was a good boy. Why didn't people recognize how good I was? I never thought that I hurt anybody with my eating behaviors. Yeah, I stole. I stole from employers so that I could buy food at work. If I was in a place where there was food out and nobody watching it, I ate as much as I could. I ate food that was intended for my family when it was left out, thinking they were going to come home at night. And I do remember at least one or two incidences where I ate my meal, went away, came back and ate somebody else's meal, and then they came home to have didn't have food. I ate to the point of I ate one time when I was working to a point where I couldn't do my job, and I thought that I'd never hurt anybody with my eating behaviors. 
I also ate to keep myself from feeling pain and from having to express it and from having to talk to anybody about it. So my relationships really were based about food. And one of the things that I still find very uncomfortable is that sometimes my relationships are based around sharing a meal with someone because that's what humans do. Sometimes I have to share a meal with somebody who's in their own disease and I have to say, "Mm, I better make a call or prayer or something before I go eat with this person because I'm going to get triggered. That I'm willing to do. All right. So steps one, two, and three weren't that hard. Step four, I needed to get to the right sponsor to be willing to do that. And I heard everybody doing a different different version of step four, and I wanted to do all of them because I wanted to be the best, and I wanted to do it the best, and I wanted to make sure I left no stone unturned, and I couldn't do that. And fortunately, I found a sponsor who was very gentle. He's still my sponsor. He says that I can do things when I'm ready. Sometimes I need to be in enough pain to be ready. I was in enough pain to follow his directions and do it very simply. And I did what I was able to do with my inventory at the time that I did it. And then I did another inventory a few years later. When I finished going through the steps, I wanted to start all over again because I was very enthusiastic and very, you know, perfectionistic. And he said, no, why don't you live... 10, and 10, 11, and 12 for a while. So I did. But when I do an inventory now, I'm usually writing about a very specific thing, and I'm writing about what my side of the street is. And um, and I still didn't feel like I did my first inventory well enough, but I did what I could at that time. And it was an amazing thing, because I remember it wasn't like I imagined it would be. I remember that we went to a restaurant and I thought we would eat first and then I would give it away. He said, no. No, you're, we're going to eat. No, so I thought we'd, I'd give it away and then we'd eat because the food was a reward. He said, no, we're going to eat first and then you're going to give it away. I, I'm easily confused. I remember that once I gave it away, I had a different kind of feeling than I'd ever had before and it was not necessarily all that bad nor was it all that comfortable. It was actually about being alive. And it was fortunate that we had somehow timed it in such a way that I was able to go from giving my inventory away to going to a 100-pounders meeting where I sat in the company of a lot of other people who either had done or were going to do what I had done. And I felt very comfortable. I felt like I was in a recovery room. That's what I like calling these rooms, recovery rooms. So I have 10 minutes left. I don't know what I've said. But here's here's the, the, the important thing. Knowing that I was going to be here tonight did something for me today. Now, I want to use my last ten minutes to take any questions because sometimes the question is more important than the answer. Okay? When I when I started working the steps, did the panic attacks go away? The miracle the, there was a miracle for me. I came in, in in June of 99, and by, if you look in one of the pages, I got two driver's licenses. If you look at the dates on those two pictures, 18 months later, I had lost more than 100 pounds. And 
I was working them fervent. I was working the steps fervently. And if you look in the dictionary, fervently means either desperate or passionately. And I do remember a time when I was talking about the fact that my desperation turned to passion. And with passion, I was no longer afraid. And with the fray, with, with the, when they say that you cannot be in fear and faith at the same time, there was no way I could have a panic attack when I was being passionate. Also got off all my medications. How do I work with the steps in my family? Yeah, and, and how do you come in recovering and being in that relationship and changing yourself? Um... How do I come in recovery, being in relationship, and being myself? Well, it looks like you were not recovered when you were with your daughter. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I intentionally, you know, when there's two pictures in there. There's my driver's license picture, and there's the picture, the two two pictures of my daughter over time. I think the one thing is, if you look at my eyes and both sets of before and after pictures, I wasn't present. I, I knew. From, from working with a doctor that I he had told me at one time that I didn't make eye contact with people um, I see it when I'm out in the world that sometimes I meet a person and everything looks right but they cannot make eye contact and when you do there's nothing there I when I'm talking especially like tonight I make a point of making eye contact, looking around, because it keeps me grounded. If I start looking at the ceiling, I'm going to go into space. I'm that way with my family, although they don't always understand it. And I have to be in contact with my sponsor and other people in program, because I don't get it. I don't get the reciprocal conversations from my family that I do from fellows in program. And I have to accept that they are perfect just the way they are. I saw you take a breath. <laughs> I am a creature of habit, and unfortunately, God keeps keeps saying I'm not done with you yet, and he keeps changing my routine. <sighs> Three days a week, I drive two hours before I eat breakfast. Um, uh, so while I'm in the car, I make a phone call. I read for today while I'm getting my, my traffic report. And then once I'm on the freeway, I call my sponsor, and then um, and then I just kind of tread water until I get to my destination, and then I eat my breakfast, and then I look and see what's on my schedule, and I do what's in front of me. On those days, I have my most of my meals packed, but sometimes my supervisor wants to take me to lunch, and I go for the company, and then I decide whether or not to take my meal with me or whether to do you know to make a choice. Um, other days that are not structured, they're hard. And so sometimes I make that phone call standing on the cold concrete in my backyard wearing my pajamas saying, I don't know what I'm doing today. Let's talk about it. Like, how can I describe my spiritual practice? Well, when I came into program, I was hopeless and I had no faith in God. Um, I was also, I lived in fear and I still recognize that fear is part of my life. And somewhere along the line, I started saying that things are never as bad as I fear. They're usually better than I can imagine. Uh, I recognize that my fear is based on what I know uh, and what I've experienced, and it limits me. And I think of it as um, when I was in grade school, I remember one, one day we did 
watercolor painting, and everybody had these watercolor things with eight colors in them. And I remember the one that I got had been used a lot, and none of the colors were crisp. In fact, most of them were already all used up, and, I, and they were all kind of mushed together. And I recognize that God has a really big palette, infinite, and all of the colors are crisp and clean, and God paints a much better picture than I do. So part of my spiritual practice is to stop trying to be in charge. I make jokes about not being in control, because I'm not. And when I let God paint the picture and say, God, will you show me what you have for me today? Will you show me what I'm supposed to do today? Uh, it goes better. I spiritually don't know what God is, and it's better for me not to. I just know that I'm not it. I could go on and on about that, because that's, a, that's one of my passions, about how do I get myself out of fear and into faith? Because having faith, having hope, is one of the things I got from program. When I realized how many people I had hurt, and there's somewhere in some of the literature that talks about the fact that we also have to recognize how we've hurt ourselves. I had to put myself at the top of the amends list because I recognized that everybody that was on my list was somebody I had deprived myself of having a good relationship with. I recognized that there were people that I could not go make amends to because my previous behavior used to be that any time I had done something bad that I felt guilty about, I would go to them and vent my guilt on them and then ask them to forgive me when what I really needed to do was clean up my side of the street and live with my choices. Those were the people closest to me. Um, People that were more distant from me that I went to with specific things of saying, I recognized I harmed you. Two Two specific instances was one of them, when I started to talk, the person shut me off and said, let me tell you what I did to you. And then another time I ran into somebody who I felt I owed an amends to and she wouldn't talk to me. And then as I'm talking, the wheels are turning and I'm remembering that somebody came to me once and made an amends to me. And I was shocked because nobody had ever apologized to me before in a way that I felt sincere. And it opened my heart to have somebody do an amends to me. And with my heart opened a little more, it became easier to be vulnerable with other people. Thank you.